0: In Peace Love Yoga, The Politics of Global Spirituality, Andrea Jane examines the interconnectedness between global spirituality and neoliberal capitalism through an examination of the global yoga and self-care industries. Building off her work in selling yoga from counterculture to pop culture, Jane examines how spiritual industries and corporations impart neoliberal spirituality, which she contends is a central component of neoliberal capitalism. In broader terms, Jane's examination of neoliberal spirituality, and yoga more specifically, provides a rich avenue to to analyze and understand the role of religion in contemporary society. Andrea Jane is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University, Indianapolis, and the editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. Hi, Andrea, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me here. So people who are familiar with your work will likely know about your last book, Selling Yoga um, from Counterculture to Pop Culture, and some of your other publications. How does Peace Love Yoga build off and diverge from your previous scholarship?
1: Yeah, so Selling Yoga was largely a project focused on accounting for how yoga became a part of global pop culture, how it uh, came to be a cultural product that was commodified and sold to mass audiences, uh, how it was marketed in such a way as to make it successful as a global consumer product. Uh, and then also it was concerned with the question of whether or not the, a, a pop culture phenomenon like yoga could also be a religious practice. And I made the argument that, in fact, yoga, even in its most popularized forms, serves as a body of religious practice. It entails myths, rituals, community creating, uh, strategies to resolve or cope with the problems of disease, suffering and death. Um, so those were the uh, issues I was concerned with in selling yoga. In peace love yoga, it's a more a stronger critique of the commodification of yoga. And I use that uh, focus on yoga as a way to critique uh, capitalism at large. I'm interested in looking at the ways in which our consumer practices contain our dissent or protest or resistance to uh, the problems of capitalism, both social problems like structural oppression leading to things like the prison industrial complex, or and environmental problems. So, um, uh, the uh, it, the ways in which capitalism perpetuates climate change um, has sped up climate change and is causing an environmental crisis. And so, I look at the ways in which spiritual consumers, especially consumers of yoga, but I also look at consumers of things like mindfulness and other spiritual commodities. Uh, but I look at the ways that their consumer practices, uh, both gesture towards a sort of discomfort or resistance to capitalism, but then that resistance is contained through consumer behaviors. For example, buying biodegradable paper plates or organic yoga wear. Um, This is a way in which we as consumers feel better about ourselves. We feel like we're doing our part to resist capitalism and the violence of capitalism, Uh, but we resist through consumption through participation in that very system.
0: So one of the points um, that you make throughout the book is that yoga is malleable, it is not definitively Hindu, and it does not have an origin. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean when you say yoga, especially because in the Western context, folks might have a very particular understanding of what yoga is, and that is postural yoga, um, a form of exercise, etc. So is that what you're referring to when you
1: say yoga, or
0: are you referring to something more yeah. broad?
1: yeah, so uh, you're ref- we're referring to an argument I make in selling yoga that yoga is always malleable. It's changing constantly over time, and that uh, is the case for pre-modern forms of yoga in South Asia, as well as modern, globalized forms of yoga. And yoga is also also does not have a single origin point because there have always been arguments over what yoga is over its purpose and how it ought to be practiced. Um, This also applies to both pre-modern and modern contexts. And so when I use the word yoga, I'm uh, using it to refer to communities that identify as yogic, uh, communities that claim to be practicing yoga. And their own claim to yoga is rooted really in storytelling, right? They they have a story. They have a narrative of who they are and where their practice comes from. And they locate it in this larger narrative of this yoga practice, going back to India, having ancient roots. And I see this um, myth-making or storytelling as critical to uh, forming communities and identifying shared practices and shared values and goals. And many contemporary practitioners of globalized yoga the kind we see practiced uh in, on college campuses and in um you know suburban uh storefronts we this they the, this might seem very superficial or phys- just fitness oriented but they if you speak to practitioners of yoga they definitely see their practice as having uh being a part of a much longer in, um uh story and that's what makes it yoga is their kind of rootedness in that narrative
0: so before we go any further, I'm wondering if you could explain some important terms for us that you use throughout the book. Um, you refer to neoliberalism, liberal spirit, neoliberal spirituality, and neoliberal capitalism. Could you explain what you mean by these terms?
1: Yeah, neoliberalism is one of the most contested terms in the contemporary academic lexicon. Um, and it's certainly contested and you know used in all sorts of different ways in pop culture. The way I'm using it is, um, is to refer not just to a economic system. So when I use capitalism, I'm talking about an economic system, but when I'm talking about neoliberalism, I'm talking about a form of governance or governmentality, neoliberal governance. I I use this, uh, phrase throughout the peace, love yoga book. And I'm, when I'm referring to, there is the ways in which we govern ourselves Uh, and this is an ideology. This is a sort of way, um, in which we, a system for telling ourselves what we ought to and ought not to do. And, uh, so neoliberalism is this is a form of self-governance as a system of values and goals that we adopt and share with many of our neighbors and in the communities we're embedded in. And, uh, neoliberalism Uh, It it values individual productivity over everything else. And so the burden of success, of health, of well-being, of happiness, all of these things we ought to strive for. And uh, we as individuals are responsible for achieving those things. And so the critique in the book is that this is a problem. Because we know from you know, evidence-based s- studies uh, that people are not entirely in uh, control of their, uh, and they're largely not in control of their place in the world and in society. We're born into social classes, racial identities, genders that uh, give us more or less power. And people are oftentimes disenfranchised in ways that they have no control over because of their inherited uh, uh, cultural identities around gender, class, race, um, uh, ethnicity, and such. And so uh, this is a sort of impossible ideal, holding the individual accountable for his or her or their happiness uh, when, in fact... Uh, they might be systematically or structurally oppressed because of their gender or racial identity. Um, So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about neoliberalism, this sort of burdening the individual with, with attain, you know, taking responsibility for things that are in fact structural, or at least largely structural.
0: Um, And what about neoliberal spirituality and neoliberal capitalism? Can you expand on those terms as well?
1: Yeah. So neoliberal capitalism is the combination of an econo- capitalist economic system and a neoliberal ideology. And so we see this as dominant in global cities around the world. Um, capitalist global cities from Hong Kong, New Delhi, New York, Los Angeles, Indianapolis where I live. Um, this is the, the dominant economic system, capitalism, and it's wedded to a dominant ideology that is neoliberalism. And so, uh, we are citizens who are, uh, 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 expected to be a part of the capitalist economic system and to, um, take responsibility for our own, uh, success in that system. And the way in which neoliberal spirituality comes into play with that is that if, you are not being productive. And if you are not successful, say rising up the ladder of the corporate organization for uh, that you work for, then uh, neoliberal spirituality becomes a tool to help you climb the ladder and get success and achieve happiness, well-being, wealth, profit. And so for example, one of the um, examples I draw on, I, I cite in the book um, that I think is really helpful uh, is the example of the the working mother who is exhausted all the time, right? Because she goes to work, she uh, works hard, then she comes home to her second shift, and she's got to take care of the children, take care of the household. And she's exhausted, and she's unhappy. And so her uh, the corporation for which she works says, hey, we're offering free yoga. Take a yoga class. Or hey, we're going to offer this mindfulness course during the lunch hour. Study mindfulness this becomes the tool for her to deal with her exhaustion, her unhappiness. And this is a great example of neoliberal spirituality. The burden is put on her to heal from these structural violences, um, these gendered violences, these corporate capitalist violences, um, and instead of there being structural changes. So a structural change would look like more parent, parent leave, at the workplace, right? She gets extended parent leave or uh childcare at the workplace. She has childcare avail- readily available for her. Uh these would be structural changes that would contribute to her well-being, health and happiness and success as opposed to neoliberal spiritual strategies that put the burden on her shoulders.
0: So I want to segue to talking a little bit about um consumerism and, um, the commercialization, commercialization of yoga, um, which you mentioned, which you mentioned earlier. Um, so let's first talk about the role of consuming spiritual products. Um, so what role does donning yoga wear or purchasing health foods assume for consumers and how do corporations and in turn consumers understand the buying and selling of these products? And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I want to flesh this out a, a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Do you mean like what role do they play for consumers in terms of their relationship to capitalism or
0: in sure, their yeah. relationship
1: to their own healing? Well, yeah. I think the the consumer products I'm most interested in are the ones that I see. I you know, I, I basically study, uh, You know, I'm a religious studies scholar. Uh, I was trained to study uh, religious texts and discourses, the way that uh, people speak about their values, their goals, their beliefs, their practices, and I study yoga wear and the texts printed across yoga wear or other other products and their texts. I study these as um religious discourses, and so I look at, for example, you know, a yoga t shirt that says "Peace Love Yoga," or "Good Vibes All Day," um, or "Good Good Vibes Good Good Vibes All the Time," um. Uh, and packaging that says, uh, you know, uh, uh authentic, uh, say authentic, uh, meditation manual or, um, uh, packaging that says biodegradable or organic, uh, packaging that sells products, um, as consciously made or environmentally friendly. Um, these discourses are all very interesting to me because what they indicate is a sort of genuine, I think, desire on the part of the consumer and the, and the marketer uh, to address global issues or problems or um, concerns about well-being, right? Uh, good vibes all the time, right? We want to be happy and we want to put out good energy into the world. We want to make other people happy, right? Peace, love, yoga. We want to put peace and love out into the world. We, um, we want to attend to the environment. So we, you know, biodegradable, green, uh, organic. These are all appealing to us. And they all, the fact that these products are popular and widely consumed, um, re- from my perspective, reflect a genuine concern about certain problems, uh, warfare, uh, conflict. Uh, suffering hunger environmental degradation consumers see these problems and they're concerned about them and uh the the problem is that when we buy a t-shirt that says good vibes right is that actually is that a reflection of our genuine concern with other people's suffering yes does it actually alleviate any suffering no um Buying biodegradable paper plates, Um, that expresses a genuine concern for the environment? Yes. Does it actually address the structural problems leading to environmental degradation? No. Um, And so that's the relationship between our consumer products and what's going on inside our heads, right? We are in crisis as consumers. We're worried. We're anxious about capitalism and its effects. On communities, individuals and the environment. but we struggle to address the problems um, uh, in a way that requires or demands uh, structure or kind of restructuring of um, you know institutions.
0: I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about authenticity. Um, you pushed back against the idea that the commodification of spirituality is inherently inauthentic. Um, could you explain how spirituality and yoga have been commodified? You may have touched on this already, um, and why you challenged previous studies that, and I'm quoting you here, reduce neoliberal spirituality to mere consumer sellouts and spiritual consumers to dupes?
1: Yeah, I am very resistant to any arguments uh, from scholars. Uh, claiming to study, whether it's yoga or Christianity or any cult, you know, religious tradition or spiritual practice, I'm resistant to any arguments that make a case uh, for or against authenticity. Because the way I see it is arguments for or against authenticity are always about power. Uh, making a case for your practice or your tradition being authentic gives you the right then to demarcate what is right yoga and what is wrong yoga? And um, I see it as a power play that we see played out in culture all the time, right? We see it right now in the current election in the United States. Arguments over like what is, what are American values? Um, what is like the the authentic story of America, and who owns that story and who gets to tell it, and who what you know what's the authentic versus the inauthentic, um, the corrupt versus the pure, and uh, these, the, the, when scholars get, in the, um, get, get pr- participate in these arguments over authenticity, I think they are participating in these power plays that I'm uncomfortable with, and I don't think it's our job as uh, academic scholars to participate in those kinds of debates. Um, instead, I think it's our job to illustrate the ways these debates play out. And what the repercussions they have um, for communities in terms of where power ends up um, and who gets to uh, make the rules and who doesn't. And so that's why I, I, you know, there's there's historical reason also for why I resist these arguments over authenticity because we know that, again, from his an historical perspective, there is no single origin point. Of yoga, just like there is no single origin point of America, right? This is a sort of ahistorical way of thinking about um, a cultural identity or a cultural practice, to think that the, there's some kind of linear trajectory where here's the origin point and then it builds and evolves from there. Uh, we know that these identities and these practices are always and continuously contested. Um, and so that's why I resist any arguments for or against um authentic yoga or corrupt yoga. And I see the commodification of yoga as just one more iteration of yoga that is no more or less authentic than other forms yoga has taken.
0: I'm wondering, could you elaborate a little bit more on how um, spirituality and yoga have been commodified? You talk a lot, and you've mentioned this already um, in our interview, but you talk about yoga wear and in the book, you really talk about spiritual gangster, this particular brand. But Beyond yoga, where, how else has yoga been commodified? And more broadly, how has spirituality been commodified?
1: Yeah. So, um, I get into this in both of my books, selling yoga and peace, love yoga, where I talk about the processes through which marketers make yoga mindfulness and other spiritual commodities, uh, widely attractive and easily consumable by the masses. Um, and so they do this first through accessibility, uh, and, This means that yoga is something that can be purchased, uh, at, uh, you know, through buying a cheap paperback or flipping on the TV and tuning into a a yoga class right there in your own living room or watching a YouTube video or, um, going to your neighborhood yoga studio, taking a yoga class on your college campus. Um, yoga has to be in other spiritual commodities, um, Easily accessible to consumers and widely accessible. Yes, yeah, so you can buy yoga wear now in your supermarket. You don't even have to go to a yoga studio to buy a yoga mat. You can get one at Target. Uh, the more accessible yoga is, um, the easy you know, the more likely it is consumers are going to uh, buy it. They've got to have it right, right, at their fingertips. Um, that's part of uh, our global consumer culture. Is Uh, making products successful by making them easily accessible. And uh, yoga also then has to be uh, cohesive with the dominant ideology. And so that's where we see yoga products and other spiritual products increasingly reflecting a neoliberal um, ideology or what I was talking about before in terms of neoliberal governance. If consumers are already Uh, immersed in a culture where they think of themselves as fully responsible for their own happiness, then they are more likely to buy products that reflect that ideology. And that's what we see in, uh, neoliberal spirituality is this again, uh, burdening of individuals with, uh, the, the, um, uh, responsibility of healing. And so uh, we see this sort of toxic positivity in yoga products where, you know, change your attitude and you can change your attitude about your own suffering by taking a mindfulness class uh, and or uh, hanging out with more spiritual people who share uh, a sort of yoga practice or uh, mindfulness practice uh and this will change your attitude and then change your life. Uh and so that becomes you know these products that reflect this neoliberal governance become more popular and uh, successful in a culture where this toxic positive positivity and this neoliberal governments is dominant. Um right? I've got I'm unhappy, I must be doing it wrong. I might not, I must not be buying the right products. I'm I'm paying for fast food instead of organic Food. I'm spending my time uh, buying video games instead of paying for a yoga class. If only I change my consumer behaviors, then um, I could be—I I will be happier and healthier.
0: So let's shift our conversation to talking about um, sexual violence in the yoga community, and you profile. Um, well, you examine a few high-profile cases um, of sexual violence um, example an example being with um, Bikram um, Patabi Joyce etc um, so
1: who are these
0: men who are these people uh, and what are they what were they or are they accused of
1: well so uh, I bikram is known as the founder of hot yoga uh, he's an Indian guru who uh, started teaching yoga in India, uh, but traveled to the United States and uh, California, Los Angeles in particular. And that's where he became really popular as a yoga guru. And he was known again for founding hot yoga. Um, he was also known for uh, being deeply authoritarian in his relationships with his students. And was eventually accused by many students of having sexually harassed and assaulted them. And uh Patabi Joyce uh he was an Indian guru who uh had many disciples, students, both Indian and Western, um, and is known as the founder of Ashtanga Yoga or Yoga Flow, as it's uh frequently marketed as. Uh, and he also, uh, mostly after his death, which was in 2009, was accused, uh, and Bikram is, is still living, um, Patavi Joyce is not, but Patavi Joyce was accused of having used adjusts. And so for listeners who might not be familiar with yogic language, that's when a yoga teacher or a yoga guru physically touches the student in order to adjust their body into the right yoga posture. Um, Ashtanga yoga is famous for this. The, the, the teacher um, engages in these adjusts. And Patabi Joyce was accused of using these as a way to sexually assault his students. And there's been um, a number of people who have revealed photographs of him in sexual positions with his students pressing his body up against theirs and such in ways that um, people have said were, were, were overtly sexual. Um, and so my argument with regard to sexual violence in the yoga industry and spirituality at large, again, is meant as a critique of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, many have associated yoga as a sort of dangerous space where uh, men can get close to women's bodies and abuse those bodies. And I see this focus on yoga as a sort of particularly dangerous cultural area as a reflection of Orientalism, that we think that, um, you know, know, Indian gurus somehow don't have control over their sexuality, or they're particularly authoritarian, or more prone to being authoritarian. Um, uh, And I make the case that what allowed, what has allowed yoga teachers and yoga gurus to get away with sexual violence is not yoga. It is a corporate structure. Um, and it's the way uh, we structure institutions under neoliberal capitalism, which are deeply authoritarian, deeply hi- hierarchical, and protect those at the top. And so I make uh, the comparison between, say, Bikram and Patabi Joyce to Donald Trump, who here's somebody who's who's been accused repeatedly of sexual violence. He's admitted to sexual violence, but, you know, uh, uh participating in sexual violence, and he rose to the top of, you know, one could argue the most powerful position in the world. Um, And he's also known for being an entrepreneur. This kind of entrepreneurial culture, uh, I argue, breeds sexual violence, and it's not unique to yoga, or not a particularly, uh, uh, you know, a bigger problem in the yoga world than the rest of the world.
0: Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about International Day of Yoga or Yoga Day and how yoga in this particular instance is implemented as an instrument to assert authority and power.
1: Yeah. So I think it's really important to not just think about global yoga in terms of Western appropriation of yoga. Um, I think there, uh, you know, a lot of the, but my my both of my books focus on uh, Western appropriations of yoga and commodifications of yoga. But we also see this happening in India itself. And in India, uh, we see gurus like Baba Ramdev, who's the most famous living yoga guru in India, Um, also an entrepreneur who runs a corporation there called Patanjali Ayurveda and sells spiritual products, wellness products, yoga products. And he works very closely in uh, with the current Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, who is a right-wing political figure who uh, is, has made the case that yoga is um, a part of Indian identity that is critical and uh, that is India's that yoga is India's gift to the world. And so he and Ramdev and many others have worked to uh promote yoga. And one way they have done this is through International Yoga Day. Uh, and the way that I see this as deeply problematic is that Modi's yoga is deeply wedded to his political commitments. Uh, one being that, uh, that India is inherently Hindu, uh, that that Hindu identity is is central to Indian identity. And so when Modi and, and Ramdev and, and other consultants to Modi's government construct their vision of yoga that they think should be taught, say, in public schools, to police officers, to the military, um, and other bureaucrats um, that they prescribe for the practice of yoga on International Yoga Day, uh, their story of yoga, their, uh, the prescribed practices and the ideas are deeply Hindu and in conflict with the commitments of other religious minorities living in India, for example, Muslims. And so there have been many Muslims in India who have been the victim, victims of the Modi government in many ways, including um, the enforcement of international yoga day, um, enforcing bureaucrats, police officers, teachers, students to practice yoga, um, not just any yoga though, uh, Modi's yoga, which is deeply tied to Hinduism, uh, and not just Hinduism at large, but Modi's version of Hinduism, a very uh, narrow, narrowly defined uh, vision of uh, both uh, Hindu identity and yoga practice. And so there have been protests on the part of religious minorities there who have said, you know, yoga is being instrumentalized as a political weapon by the Modi government. Um, and I see that as a problem, and it goes hand in hand with Modi's neoliberalism. Modi is not just wedded to this argument that Hindu identity is critical to, um, to Indian identity, but also that, uh, that neoliberalism is the ideology that will lift Indians up out of poverty um, out of various, uh, disenfranchised positions, uh, and empower, um, Indian citizens. And so again, yoga is the, you know, if you're suffering, if you're living in poverty, if you're not successful at the workplace, you, you're not doing yoga, right. You're not buying the right stuff, buy the right yoga mat, pay to study with the right teacher, take a retreat at, at Baba Ramdev's, uh, yoga campus. And that's going to bring you success and not govern uh, you know institutionalized change or restructuring.
0: What can we learn about religion's role um, in contemporary society through an examination of neoliberal spirituality more broadly and yoga more specifically?
1: Well I think that religious institutions generally uh, they tend to uh, both they, they can they can either... Re- internalize and reflect the dominant norms uh and dominant values or they can resist them and you know there is nothing inherently uh ethical or unethical about religion uh religious institutions historically have uh you know been res- you know uh, uh been institutions that have resisted oppression and they have been institutions that have been complicit and Exacerbated oppression. And so, what we have to learn about religion and society in general when studying neoliberal spirituality is the ways in which religious institutions are complicit in and perpetuating uh, neoliberal capitalism, which is leading to increased uh, social stratification, increased poverty, increased uh, environmental degradation, uh, and the ways that, uh, spiritual leaders and uh, spiritual consumers perpetuate, uh, like the, 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 the discourses or language of neoliberal capitalism, the ways that they tie these, the, that, uh, neoliberal capitalism to, uh, to values that are then associated with, with religious institutions. So for example, when, A a church or a yoga community, a yoga leader says, You are responsible for your own well being, right? If you're unhappy, what are you doing wrong? Um, Maybe you're not choosing the right church, or you're not buying the right uh, Bible translation, or you're not sending your kid to the right Christian college. Uh, Likewise, you're not practicing the right yoga, or you're not buying healthy foods. Um, This, these kinds of discourses we hear across religious traditions, um, burdening the individuals for their own unhappiness. Um, This is coming from neoliberal capitalism, not necessarily from some kind of authentic Christianity or some kind of authentic yoga.
0: So we're approaching the end of our interview, but I want to conclude with one final question. What, um, what are you working on
1: now? I've decided to really uh, shift a bit in my work. Uh, I'm interested, I, 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 you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic that is uh, affecting all of us in various ways. And um, personally, I'm the mother of two children and one of whom uh, is on the autism spectrum. And I've had my kids home e-learning for much of this pandemic. So honestly, I haven't um, gotten to dive into my new projects, uh, much quite yet because peace love yoga was just published a couple of months ago and, um, I've had my kids home e-learning, but, um, my plan is to continue my work on religion and capitalism and, uh, but to shift from my focus on popular spirituality and the yoga industry and look at, uh, consumer practices in terms of, uh, their, relationship to animal ethics. So I'm interested in looking, for example, at food justice movements uh, and veganism and uh the ways in which these are related also to uh things like white supremacy uh and racial other racial issues. And so in other words, I'm interested in doing some work now that looks at the intersections between, you know, religion, animal ethics, uh, white supremacy, um, and finding where consumer practices kind of wed these things together, um, so that's probably where uh, my next, you know, work will come from—is that that kind of line of thinking.
0: Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us today uh, and talking to us about your your book, *Peace, Love, Yoga: The Politics of Global Spirituality*. Is out now.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.